I'd like to say thank you to Peter because, you know, somebody may zoom off if I click at the end of this time if you've got something to go to and so on. But I'd just like to take a moment to say thank you very much to Peter for having come to spend these, um, this sort of, it's not even a 24-hour period actually, it's an intense period, not 24 hours, but this time with us which we value coming away for a time like this. And there's a lot of material we're gathering up which we'll have to go into discussion and workshop in the coming later on. But uh, Peter, on, on behalf of all of us here, I really do appreciate you having come over. And it's, you know, it's your first time to Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. but I am sure that we will like to bring you back again. There are lots of areas that we know we'd like to research and investigate with sure. you. Sure. And we really appreciate what you've done and the way you've done it. And we, we, we really do value that and we will be able to follow up. More and with this, Peter. Great. Pray for you and we'll pray for you. And some of us will be in church tomorrow. If you're up north, mm. and we look forward to a very different setting. This is where, uh, although I will still be mentioning archaeology, I'm going to get a little bit more interdisciplinary uh, on you uh, and talk about the argument from fulfilled prophecy, uh, which is an argument that fell out of favour, really, since the days of folks like uh, William Paley, to reference someone who we've uh, mentioned uh, before already. He wrote a book called uh, The Evidences of Christianity, in which uh, he has some chapters on the argument from Christ's fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and so on. Uh, it was an argument that I came across uh, in my uh, earlier days from writers like Josh McDowell, uh, and uh, indeed I noticed from the, the book table here, uh, Norman L. Geisler's Christian Apologetics has a, a few pages on the argument from Messianic prophecy in here. Uh, and it was an argument that it both intrigued and frustrated me um, I thought that uh, there was something in the argument, but that it should be constructed uh, much more carefully, uh, handled much more carefully than it was in the hands of folks like uh, McDowell and Geisler, uh, for whom it seemed to be enough simply to uh, quote an Old Testament passage, uh, quote a New Testament passage saying that this prophecy was fulfilled in Christ, uh, on the background of a general argument for the, the general historical reliability of the, of the Gospels, and then say, uh, so that, uh, look at the, the odds of uh, Jesus having fulfilled these by, by chance are so, so astronomical uh, that uh, this is good evidence that Jesus really did and he'll fulfill these uh, miraculously, uh, and therefore, um, this is an argument for uh, Jesus being the Messiah. Um, so I've had an ongoing project over a number of years to try and uh, come back to and research and, and tighten up and strengthen this argument from fulfilled prophecy. It's something I wrote about uh, one of the chapters in my book, uh, Understanding Jesus, where I look at what I think are the, the five arguments that Jesus and the apostles uh, used uh, in favour of a Christian understanding of Christ uh, and that this is one of those arguments and uh, is an argument that works best in the context of, of all of those arguments of a cumulative case. Um, you could 
consider it alongside arguments for God, like the, the teleological argument we were just looking at. Um, but I think that it's an argument that will have its, its most power if you already approach this data with belief in some kind of a God in hand. So, say, uh, one of the drawbacks we were talking about of the teleological argument was that e even if you think the argument works, it doesn't tell you particularly much about the character of God. Um, it tells you a certain amount, but not very much, perhaps. Uh, but supposing someone like uh, Anthony Flew or whatever is convinced by the design argument that there's, there's some kind of intelligent creator God behind the universe, uh, then these kind of arguments, such as the argument from fulfilled prophecy uh, for Christ's uh, messianic status and so on, uh, will be found much more impressive. And uh, as it were, all of the weight of the argument can go into uh, showing that Jesus is who Christians think he is, rather than some of the weight of that argument having to go into thinking, well, is there even a God in the first place? Um, you could make it do double work but if you take that, that sort of, uh, I'm sure you've looked into different apologetic methodologies. So I'm, I'm really talking about the, the classical apologetic methodology of first arguing for some kind of theism and then arguing on the basis of Christian evidences that, that God has revealed himself in Christ to be specifically the God of Abraham and of Moses and of Jesus. So that's a kind of uh, background. And you'll find uh, lots of material on this, not only in my book, Understanding Jesus, that I'll be drawing on partly here, uh, but through my, my website, uh, podcasts, and, and so on. Anyway, so let's look at Jesus, the prophesied prophet, sort of two parts you can see there. This is where we're looking uh, at historical events uh, and drawing upon not just uh, biblical data here, but drawing upon extra-biblical data in order to make the argument as much as we can, both archaeological and literary evidence from non-biblical and indeed non-Christian sources, which I think will be found much more impressive by non-Christians. Uh, so Thomas V. Morris, in his fantastic uh, book, uh, Making Sense of It All, which is really a commentary on Blaise Pascal's uh, Poncy's thoughts on life, his notes for unpublished apologetic work. He died before he could actually write the book based on the notes, but the notes in the, of themselves are um, so wonderful that they are now published as a book uh, and people write commentaries on them. And uh, Thomas V. Morris, American Christian philosopher, uh, writes that a single successful prediction about a remote or unlikely event can be just a lucky guess. A shot in the dark that just happens to hit its target. Of course it can. But the more successful predictions of that sort a person is able to make, the less likely we are to be fully satisfied with just ascribing it all to luck. As Richard Dawkins himself admits, we can only allow ourselves so much luck in our explanations of things. There comes a point, and it may be hard to precisely nail down where that point is, but there certainly comes a point where just saying, oh, that was lucky, just becomes a too implausible an explanation of the available data. Marcus 
Tullius Cicero was a Roman writer, a Roman author about rhetoric. And this is a famous passage that's often talked about in the, in the context of uh, classical thought about design arguments. And you know how we have a, in the game of Scrabble with the, the English letters on the, the movable uh, tiles. And uh, Cicero says, if uh, a countless number of copies of the one and twenty letters of the Greek alphabet is talking about here, of the alphabet uh, made of gold or whatever you will, if these sort of tiles of letters were, were thrown together in some receptacle, put them all in a box and then shaken out onto the ground, would it be possible that they should produce the annals of Aeneas? Right, that they, that they, all these letters, you shake them out in a box and you go, and they form the text of a book. <laughs> you know, do you, would you feel comfortable at that point saying, oh, that was lucky? <laughs> Probably not. He says, would they produce the annals of Aeneas? He says, I doubt whether chance could possibly succeed in producing even a single verse of something like that. Uh, that's just beyond the capacities of chance to produce that much uh, what we in modern technical parlance would call something like information. You can break down his argument in slightly more modern terminology, bor borrowing some terminology that's used within intelligent design theory actually, but they're, they're appealing to an a, a, a ancient tradition that's used within various modern fields of science when they make this appeal. Um, what uh, design theorists call complex specified information, a particular type of arrangement of things that, that hits an independently knowable pattern at very long odds. Complex specified information must have an external cause. It, it's complex, that means it, it has to be contingent. That arrangement of things, it's one possible arrangement out of a very large number of possible arrangement of things, of those letters. Um, and the fact that the, the one arrangement that does appear when you throw the letters out of the box adheres to the rules of Greek grammar, <laughs> um, that's uh, complex specified information. They must, they must have some sort of external cause, he's arguing. But, but clearly the letters in and of themselves don't contain that information that's, that's in a book. The information of a book's not contained in the, the, in the ink that adheres to the pages. Uh, therefore, if you see a book, uh, the complex specified information it exhibits had to come from outside of the letters. Well, natural laws, natural law-like processes, uh, they work in a regular fashion. So laws could transmit information, but they can't create it. Um, so if there was a law of nature that every time um, a radio signal went beep, then it had to go beep. And then every time, and another law that said every time it goes beep, it has to go beep, then it would follow that there was only one possible Morse code message that you could send by radio. It would be bit, 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 bit. But you wouldn't be able to send SOS. 
That would be impossible. You can only send an SOS because it's a contingent arrangement of short and long static bursts. Um, and that means that you can't explain that by the, the laws of radio transmission. Or if you have uh, magnetic uh, letters, sometimes you get a, a magnetic letter set and people put them on their fridge. You know? the, 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 the laws of magnetism explain why all of the letters stick to the, the fridge. But the laws of magnetism don't explain why the letters are arranged to spell out the message, buy more milk. And if, if a law of nature explained that arrangement, that would make other arrangements physically impossible. <laughs> you can, uh, so the, the information in the message doesn't come from the material constituents of the message. Natural laws could transmit, but not produce complex specified information, and chance, as in Cicero's analogy, thought experiment, is very unlikely to produce very much of that kind of information. But we do know of one cause that easily produces that kind of information. We, we know of an adequate explanation, and that's minds. We regularly experience minds producing that kind of effect. Therefore, the best explanation of a book, or a musical score, or a computer program, or a Morse code message, or fridge magnets arranged to say, buy more milk, <laughs> is that a mind informed the arrangement of the contingently arranged physical parts of that event, that structure. William Lane Craig uh, boils it down this way and gives a nice analogy. He says, uh, as a basis for making a design inference, in addition to high improbability, there also needs to be conformity to an independently given pattern. So, for example, in a poker game, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. Every deal of cards in a game of poker is one possible deal out of all of the possible deals of cards. And that, that, the number of that improbability applies to every deal. Okay? They're all equally improbable in that sense. But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, <laughs> you can bet, haha, this is not the result of chance, but of design. And Craig says, you know, the cowboy in Dodge City who keeps getting the aces when he deals in the poker game in the saloon, and the other cowboys turn over the table and draw their six shooters on him and say, Quick-fingered McGraw, I's reckon you're cheating. And Quick-fingered McGraw says, hey, guys, what are you upset about? I mean, every deal of cards is equally unlikely as all the others. <laughs> that explanation's not going to play in Dodge City. <laughs> so just being unlikely is not in and of itself enough to warrant us just from looking at that information, the fact that it's unlikely, that's not enough for us to say, therefore it must have been designed. But if it's unlikely 
and it hits this sort of independent pattern, a specification. That combination of factors does, in our experience, reliably indicate design. So, back to those Scrabble letters. Um, you're playing Scrabble, and uh, you pick out of the Scrabble bag a long series of letters like this. That is a very unlikely event. But you can easily get away without invoking design. It might have been designed. Someone could, if you came in and saw that on the, on the Scrabble table, someone could have deliberately arranged all of those letters in that order. Yeah? But you can't tell that simply by looking at the letters. So that, that doesn't justify you in thinking, ah, someone's been designing the arrangement of Scrabble letters. It's complex, and it's unlikely, but it's not specified. Or, or if you pulled out the letters D-O-G whilst playing Scrabble, and you pull out the letters D. Oh, <gasps> that's the word do. Um, G dog, good grief, someone's playing a... No, you know, you're not surprised. <laughs> you wouldn't be surprised, because it's not all that unlikely that occasionally you pull out the odd short word in English, just by chance. Chance can do that. It's specified, but it's not sufficiently complex to trigger your suspicion-ometer, as it were. But suppose you're playing Scrabble, and you draw out the bag. All things do become, have become, and will become, some by nature, some by art, and some by chance, Plato Law, Book 10 then you would be suspicious, I suggest. <laughs> you would think, someone's pulled a fast one on me here. Where's the candid camera? What's going on? Yeah? Because it's both very complex and specified. And it is, as Plato would have argued, clearly the product of art, design. <laughs> well, you see someone enter a sequence of numbers into a cash machine, and it gives them money. Okay? Were they, A, lucky, or B, did they get the money by design? Which way would you bet? Okay. When any complex event matches an independently given specified pattern, we infer design. Now, a pin number, of course, has four digits. Each of those digits is one out of ten possibilities, given you have the number zero as well. So that's one out of ten times, not add, times 1 out of 10, times 1 out of 10, times 1 out of 10. So just getting your pin number right is a 1 in 10 to the 4 possibility. That's 1 in 10,000 chance of guessing the pin number by chance, just guessing it on your first attempt. Now, it gets a little bit more complex when we know that you might try a number of times. That will up your chances. Um, maybe there are a lot of people trying to break bank accounts, randomly typing numbers into machines. That, yeah. um, but you get the basic idea here about how we infer design from this mixture of complexity and a pattern. So we can apply that to this argument from fulfilled prophecy and say, look, if there's a, a, a close, a specific correspondence between 
the most plausible reading of a prophetic prediction and a sufficiently improbable or complex event or series of events, then the best explanation for that match between prophecy and event is design. That's step one. Step two, in such a case, if the prediction was A, written before the event, it's quite key, if it was written before the event, and B, the fulfillment event wasn't humanly invented, just made up, someone didn't just say, just say it happened, although it didn't, it wasn't invented or humanly manipulated in order to fit the prediction. You know, I, I could, you know, I can't style myself a prophet by saying, later this afternoon, I will dance around the car park in my pajamas with a teapot on my head and then make it come true by going, getting my pajamas out of my bag, borrowing a teapot from the kitchen and going and doing it. Because you would all say, hey, you just deliberately did that. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you can't just manipulate events to fit this prior prediction. So if you can fit, if you can, you can fit those criteria as well, then I would suggest, then the natural explanation of this match would reference the supernatural resources from the religious context of the prophecy. And what you want to do is try and, 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 and get as strong evidence as possible that you've met these conditions. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11 is a, is a nice verse for organising our thinking about uh, messianic prophecy because uh, Peter appeals to the argument from prophecy here and he uh, organises it into different categories. Uh, so from the CEV version he says here, some prophets told of how kind God would be to you and they searched hard to find out more about the way you would be saved. The spirit of Christ was in them and was telling them how Christ would suffer and would then be given great honour. So they searched to find out exactly who Christ would be and when this would happen. So Peter is claiming that there are a number of different kinds of prophecy in the Old Testament about the Messiah, who, from his point of view, is Jesus, and that those prophecies are about uh, that the Messiah would suffer, that despite the suffering he'd be given great, great honour, uh, who he would be, and that's, that's, I think, in terms of his sort of genealogy, um, and when the Messiah would come as well. So you could look in, uh, under prophecy under all of those uh, categories. And he's, he's appealing here, clearly he's appealing to a known tradition of Messianic prophecy, otherwise his argument wouldn't make uh, any sense. It's, this is common ground between him and his, his audience here. Now on the question of, look, what... what Maybe these, these so-called fulfilled prophecies were written after the fact. Events happened, and then people wrote down, the prophet so-and-so said that this would happen, to try and make it look like Jesus had fulfilled prophecy. Here is where, uh, particularly in the case of messianic prophecies, archaeology uh, comes to uh, our aid, um, as well as uh, standard sort of dating techniques um, on, on the Bible. Because here I would argue, 
what we should do is we should follow the, the evidence for the dating of any biblical text. We should follow the evidence rather than setting the dating of a, of a, of a text using the philosophical assumption that it must post-date any apparent fulfilled prophecy. Because then what you're doing is you're just begging the question against the argument from fulfilled prophecy. So you can't beg the question and say, it must have been written later. What you have to do is you have to ask, what is the actual specific evidence of when this was written? And you have to go with that, otherwise you're begging the question. And here, the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery, as well as the dating of the Septuagint Greek translations of the Old Testament, uh, both show that by 150 BC, the Old Testament prophecies were definitely in existence. Whatever quibbles you might have about the dating here or there by several hundred years of something like the book of Daniel or the prophecies in Isaiah, at the very least you can say they all existed by 150 BC, more than 150 years before Jesus' ministry, because we've dug them up in these pots in the cave in the Dead Sea Scroll, as, and that includes things like uh, 44 chapters of the book of Isaiah dating from 150 BC. We've got the Septuagint Greek translation of the entire Old Testament from 150 BC. So you, you cannot, in the case of Messianic prophecies, convincingly argue that these were just made up after the fact that these were prophecies. You could argue in the other direction and say, well, maybe the New Testament fulfillments are historicised prophecy. That is, the, the Gospel writers read these Old Testament prophecies and then said, let's make up the idea that Jesus fulfilled these pre-existing prophecies. Is that plausible? Again, you can't just beg the question here. You've got to ask, what's the specific evidence? And I would argue that this idea of historicised prophecy is implausible given the multiple and sometimes independent witnesses to purportedly public events, public claimed events, um, especially including non-Christian testimony to certain events that are said to be prophetic fulfillments. So things like Jesus' crucifixion, for example, is multiply witnessed across Christian, not Jewish and Roman sources of the first and second century. Um, so it would be very implausible to argue, ah, oh, you know, Luke read Isaiah 53 and then said, oh, look, it, it seems like the, the Messiah figure here is, su is suffering and so on. Let's, let's portray Jesus as someone who suffered in order to say he fulfilled that prophecy in this way. It's implausible to think the disciples invented non-historical details in reports of, for example, Jesus' death and resurrection in order to historicise prophecies that pretty clearly from their writings they only interpreted as predicting those events, those prophetic, prophetic fulfilments in the light of the perceived reality of the resurrection. In other words, it was their experience of Jesus' passion and resurrection that caused them to reevaluate the Old Testament portrait of who the Messiah would be in the way that we now see that there's a match. Before those events, they didn't read things like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, 23, in, in those kind of ways. And they 
Because if they did, they would have been expecting Jesus' suffering. And it's clear from the New Testament, and this is an embarrassing fact for them, because they're not trusting what Jesus says about this, and people don't tend to tell embarrassing stories about themselves unless it's true, so you have, you know, Peter, when Jesus says, yeah, now the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and die and so on. And Peter says, no, Lord, you can't possibly do that because he's thinking, you know, and he's just said, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And then he's thinking, so that means you're going to go to Jerusalem and kick Roman butt because that's what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to kick the Romans out. Yeah. Let's bring it on, Jesus. And then Jesus says, and so I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to get myself killed. And they're like, what? So clearly they weren't, they weren't thinking in that way. Um, it's only those events that supposedly they're historicizing, it's only the, their experience of those events that lead them to interpret the Old Testament in this way. Historicide prophecy is implausible given the integrity displayed by the gospel writers' use of material that's embarrassing to them. And I've mentioned about Peter, for example, multiple examples, particularly in Mark's gospel, uh, which uh, Peter's preaching stories seem to stand behind, uh, given the fact that they, they, they admit, that they hide it in the 1 Corinthians 15 creed, but they do admit in the gospels that it was women who were the first witnesses to the resurrection. Um, and they hide that in 1 Corinthians 15, the, creed, the official creed that Paul talks about there, because that's a very embarrassing fact in their cultural circumstance. Um, the marginalisation of women at that time meant that telling people, yeah, this happened and our, our primary witnesses were women, would mean no one's going to believe you. Um, but they do admit that in the Gospels, that's embarrassing. So they. They seem to be writers who care so much about truth that they are prepared to admit embarrassing to them data. It's implausible given their willingness to be martyred for these beliefs. Uh, that, I think, d demonstrates a sincerity and a concern for truth. And it's very unlikely that, that Peter, for example, or James or Stephen, uh, would have allowed themselves to be martyred for something that they knew that they had just made up and historicised in the Gospels. Uh, indeed, in 2 Peter it says, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, and that kind of attitude seems borne out by their willingness to die for their faith. Stephen T. Davis pulls this together when he says, Had, had the early Christians engaged in such a practice of thinking, well, we can just kind of make stuff up and put them in the Gospels because it's convenient or useful to us. Had early Christians engaged in such practices, it's highly probable that sayings would have been placed in the mouth of Jesus that were relevant to the central concerns and controversies of the church uh, in the second half of the first century. Uh, but notice there are no sayings of Jesus in the canonical Gospels that are directly relevant to such burning issues in the late first century church as whether male Gentile converts were obliged to be circumcised, an issue that nearly split the church in the early days, whether Christians should divorce their non-Christian spouses or not, um, the proper practice for the Lord's Supper, uh, how churches ought to be governed, etc. None of these early debates within Christianity are addressed within the Gospels or as reports, or, you know, or 
if you thought, well, I can just make stuff up because it's useful, or just make it, well, Jesus said, here's how to deal with this issue, that would have put an end to it, wouldn't it? But they never do that. Again, their sincerity of reporting. There is the issue of deliberate fulfilment. Remember me dancing around the car park in my pyjamas with a teapot on my head? Um, sometimes Jesus did things like this in order to make the claim that he is the Messiah. So <coughs> let's just bracket those kind of events out of the argument. So when Jesus made a new covenant in his blood, that's a new covenant is predicted in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, multiple attestation from the New Testament that Jesus made a new covenant. Um, but clearly, he, he, he was deliberately making a new covenant, probably in light of the fact that he knew that the, the Messiah was meant to do that. He would have known Jeremiah. It was easy for him to, to say that. Um, he was probably deliberately fulfilling prophecy or riding a donkey into Jerusalem, which is sometimes quoted um, in this, this argument, saying, there you are, the Old Testament says, you know, your king comes to you riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, and so on, and Jesus rode in Jerusalem on a donkey. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Well, yeah, in a sense it is, but also it's not particularly going to be very impressive to the non-Christian because they can say, look, Jesus, Jesus probably just read this in the Old Testament and then said, get me a donkey. <laughs> That's not all that hard to do. So let's just bracket those kind of events. What we need to notice is that there are many fulfilled prophecies over which Jesus could, humanly speaking, have had very little or indeed no control. So his lineage, humanly speaking, he didn't get much control over what genetic heritage he had within the tribes of Judah, stretching back to King David and so on, or, or the place of his birth. You know, he wasn't in charge of the birthing arrangements at the time of his birth. Or the fact, at the very least, that he was perceived by his contemporaries of having healed people and of being a, a very uh, powerful and impressive healer. Um, his rejection by the authorities. You might argue he could kind of deliberately do things that would rile them so they would reject him. Um, but there were other messianic figures. Uh, some of them were embraced by the crowds. Uh, it's entirely plausible that, that he could have been embraced, um, having done the right things by the, by the authorities, but he wasn't. Um, that one's a little bit more kind of on the borderline, maybe. Certainly, uh, his rep uh, reputation, repudiation sorry, by Peter. You know, he predicts that Peter's going to repudiate him, and Peter does. Um, Peter seems very cut up about that. Uh, I think it's implausible to think that this is some sort of conspiratorial arrangement between Jesus and Peter. Hey, Peter, I'm going to predict that you're, you're going to completely abandon me and everything. And what I want you to do is when I get crucified, when I'm, you know, out the trial and so on, uh, make sure that you repudiate me three times before the cockle crows, and then we'll put that into the Gospels later. Um, yeah, conspiratorial thinking sort of creeps in at that stage, I think. Or what about the time and circumstances of his death uh, compared to the Psalms and Isaiah 53? Um, little details. It's interesting, for example, I think it's, I, I'm right in remembering, only, only John's Gospel mentions the soldiers gambling for his clothing, which is a prediction of something in the, in the Psalms. But John doesn't capitalise upon that. 
You know, often in the Gospels they say, such and such happened so that the prophecy would be fulfilled as so-and-so said, blah, and they make an argument. John doesn't make an argument. He just seems to report it as an interesting fact that he noticed that he doesn't capitalise on. It's like he hasn't noticed that that's in the Psalms. Um, so the, the circumstances of his resurrection, uh, resurrection from the dead as well, we're going to look for, for Psalm, uh, Isaiah 53 and so on. Or um, indeed his prediction of the destruction of the temple um, after he was no longer on earth at least, let's put it like that. So um, these are just some statistics. Uh, this is back of the envelope thinking. Uh, it's very hard. You can't, of course, put, you know, scientifically put specific numbers on some of these things, generally speaking. Some of them you can, um, but most of them you can't. Here are eight prophecies on Messiah's origins. He's got to come from this tribe. He's got to come through David and, and Abraham, and he's got to be born in Bethlehem, and he's uh, got to be from the line of David, and, and so on. And I just uh, I put a rough estimate of uh, one chance in 17 million there by the time you've multiplied the factors together. And the thing here to do is just to be hugely conservative on the numbers you use. Just bend over backwards to be conservative. And if the person you're discussing with thinks that you're not being conservative enough, just invite them to guesstimate some numbers. The fact is there are just so many prophecies that by the time you multiply them together, you very quickly get up into astronomical numbers uh, anyway. Or um, here are four prophecies about Messiah's actions. Uh, one chance in 10 million, including that uh, Messiah will be a prophet, or let's say will be perceived as a prophet and that he will be perceived to have healed various uh, ailments. And notice that I'm putting, I'm putting multiple in, and in including independent testimony from the New Testament here. So John's Gospel as well as the Synoptic Gospels, for example, not just going to sort of one source um, on that. Now, on, the, on the, the healings and so on, it's interesting to note that we have, if we kind of tabulate... Uh, Jesus' most famous uh, miracles, and look at where the, the data from the gospel comes. There are some where, again, because you know the, the synoptics kind of uh, Matthew and Luke borrow material from Mark, so there's a sort of literary relationship between them. John is thought of as an independent report because there's no literary relation between them. Um, that there are uh, data, for example, um, Peter's mother in law being healed. That's reported by Mark and Matthew in the synoptics, but it's also reported by John independently. That's more impressive than it just being reported by the synoptics or just by John. Or the healing of the Roman centurion's servant, again, reported by John and by the synoptic gospels. There are multiple independent first century witnesses to these miracles. Um, 18 miracles of Jesus appeared in more than one gospel. All four categories of miracle have early multiple sources backing them up, including eyewitness sources like John and the key material that's thought to lie behind Mark's gospel and so on. And there's that's what's called enemy attestation, non-Christian attestation from outside the Bible, that Jesus was at least perceived to be a miracle worker. So Josephus, using the same language that he used, used to describe miracles of Old Testament prophets uh, in his antiquities, says that Jesus was a doer, doer of startling deeds, i.e. miracles. The Babylonian Jewish Talmud uh, puts this accusation. On the eve of Passover, they hanged Yeshua, Jesus, 
and an announcer went out in front of him for 40 days saying he's going to be stoned because he practiced sorcery and enticed and led Israel astray. So they're, they're, they're saying, as, as they, they do in the Gospels, the, the Pharisees say, yeah, you've healed someone, but it's by the power of Beelzebub. They don't say, you didn't heal him. They admit the healing, but they, they attribute it to, a, to a, an ungodly source. We find that uh, outside the Bible as well as inside the Gospel reports. In uh, 180 AD, the pagan philosopher Celsus wrote this. He said, it was by magic that Jesus was able to do the miracles which he appears to have done. So again, he, he, says he knows at least, at the very least, that Jesus had a reputation as a miracle worker, but then he tries to explain it away in terms that were plausible to his culture. So for Jesus' fulfillment of 12 prophecies, just 12 prophecies about his origins and his actions, back of the envelope calculation, one chance in 170 million million, take 15 aspects of his fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, um, and just assign a one in four chance to each of those fulfillments. So that would mean thinking, you know, one in four Jewish men in the first century had their hands pierced. One in four men in the first century had their clothing gambled for by soldiers and so on. Now that's ridiculously conservative, isn't it? Um, one chance in 1,074 million. By the time you multiply the factors together, you get this exponential increase in the number. This is where I get to drop in some Old Testament archaeology. This month, it was announced uh, that they have found, you remember these, the, the boule we were looking at, the Bethlehem boule and so on? Um, a few years ago, archaeologists discovered uh, near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem uh, the seal boule of King Hezekiah, very clearly and undisputed. They've now revealed that in the same dig, they've been sifting through it, and they found this boule. Uh, it has a picture of a deer at the, at the top here that's been broken off. The word here, which is missing one letter, but there's only one letter alphabetically that it could be uh, in, in uh, Hebrew, is Isaiah. And this line here, it, there's three out of four letters from the word for prophet, one letter is missing, uh, but that's because you can even see the, the thumbprint on the, the boule here, that bit of the, the seal's been, been squished as someone was making the seal impression. They just squished that word. If you follow the line around in the, in the pattern around here, you'll see that there's just enough space missing there for an extra letter. So there probably was an extra letter there. Um, so it's highly plausible that this... Uh, says Isaiah the prophet and the fact that it was found like nine feet away from the Hezekiah boule in Jerusalem at the same historical level um, you had to be powerful and rich and so on to have one of these etc uh, I think it is exceedingly plausible if not a knockdown cert that this is the the boule of Isaiah uh, the prophet uh, from Hezekiah's day and of course, uh, Isaiah uh, associated with prophecies like Isaiah 53, but let's not get into all of the arguments about whether one Isaiah or two Isaiahs or three Isaiahs, and that'll take us down a whole other rabbit trail. But anyway, that's at least an Isaiah. <laughs> so um, remember, we can conservatively 
using numbers like one chance in four and so on, estimate that Jesus had one chance, let's get this right, in 182,580 million 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 of fulfilling those 27 prophecies that we've looked at by chance. That's roughly one chance in 1.8 times 10 to the 23. That's 1.8 times 10 to the 23. If we just took the number uh, 10 to the 23, that is, uh, roughly speaking, the number of grains of sand on the planet. So what if, you're, if, I, if I were to irradiate, in a specific way, one grain of sand on the planet, say, here's the, the Geiger counter that will pick up this radiation signature, um, go anywhere on the planet you like. Bend down once with your pair of tweezers and pick up a grain of sand. Check it with your painted Geiger counter. What are the chances that your Geiger counter will go, that's the one. Roughly one chance in 10 to the 23, which is a lot lower number than Jesus' odds of fulfilling by chance just those 27 messianic prophecies. Now, as I say, our calculations were conservative. Someone might mention, but they were partially dependent upon what we could call inherently miraculous events, because we did point to Jesus doing, or at least being believed to do miracles, uh, to Jesus uh, being believed to be uh, a prophet was in there as well, and we'll come back to that. But we can give evidence for those things. So if, you're, if the question is, you know, who's following the evidence here, rather than who's just begging the question by saying, I don't believe miracles can happen, or whatever, then we end up in a discussion about David Hume. Um, but, okay, let, let's bend back even more to be generous to the critic. Um, setting aside any inherently miraculous events, such as healings, um, James Ditz, in an article I referenced in the literature, he looks at 25 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. He uses odds of one in four for the fulfillment of each of them, which gets you up to a chance of about one in 10 to the 15 of far chance fulfillment. And he says, if there are prophecies in the list that the reader finds objectionable, and there is one, because he uses Hosea 11.1. Now, Hosea 11.1, probably heard in this context, out of Egypt I called my son. And they say, ah, oh, yeah, it says in the Gospels, doesn't it? You know, after Herod was screaming blue murder and going to kill all the children, family escaped to Egypt. And then later on, when he's dead, they come back out of Egypt. And Gospels quote, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, in the original context, clearly that is not a messianic prophecy. It's talking about God's son Israel being rescued out of Egypt in the Exodus. It's uh, what's called a, a typological fulfilment, uh, which is a whole other area of this argument where you say there's a pattern of God's activity seen in the Old Testament, and the Messiah, as the sort of representative figure of Israel and the children of God, recapitulates in his life various elements of that divine pattern seen in the Old Testament, called a typological fulfilment. But I'm I'm just going to set that kind of thing aside um, because it saves a lot of arguing <laughs> uh, and, and just say, well, let's, let's drop out that, let's drop in another, one of the other one. There are enough Old Testament prophecies that we can swap them in and out. Uh, so let's say, okay, what's one chance in 10 to the 15? That's one quadrillion. 
That's about the estimated total number of ants that are alive on the planet Earth at any one time. That's not, a, that's not as impressive number as the number of grains of sand, granted, but it's still a pretty impressive number. So as Morris says, a series of prophecies, you've got a whole series of prophecies made by different people at different times, culminating in a single fulfilment by the life of so remarkable a person as Jesus, and we're putting this in the context of a cumulative argument. You know, okay, what are the odds that the person who happens to fulfil all of these Old Testament prophecies should also be the person that we have independent evidence worked miracles. Independent evidence, as we see, that he was a prophet. Independent evidence that he rose from the dead. Um, uh, whose, whose life and claims form the paradox at the heart of the lunatic liar lord argument, and so on. When you start putting all these things together, um, it becomes very impressive, I think. Uh, and so remarkable a person as Jesus, it cries out for an explanation of a quite extraordinary sort. It, it's simply not enough to say, ha, huh, that's lucky. The most reasonable explanation, argues Morris, is that God was involved in the prof prophecy and or the fulfilment, thereby giving us an extra ground for accepting Jesus as the culmination of divine revelation. You see, the next section is about Jesus as a prophet, rather than as the fulfiller of messianic prophecy, but let me just pause there to see if there are any questions or quibbles. What, what's the closest you've seen in terms of this being discussed in a, in a very secular environment and given credibility? Yeah. Um, it is an argument that's now beginning to be discussed in the peer-reviewed philosophy literature. Um, but that would, it would still generally, I think, be the case that it's the peer-reviewed philosophy literature published by Christian philosophy societies. Um, so I've seen articles on this in Philosophia Christi, which is the journal of the Evangelical Philosophy Society in America. Um, it, it's a decent journal. It's the world's largest circulation peer-reviewed journal of philosophy. Um, and it's beginning to be discussed in those kind of circles. Um, and that probably means that the atheist philosophers have to take notice of it now. Um, but I, I, I think it's it's been an argument that's sort of lost its favour for so long under the influence of higher criticism and that sort of German liberal theology from the 19th into the 20th century uh, that we're only now beginning to catch up with the fact that there were all sorts of holes in that German liberal approach uh, philosophically speaking, literally speaking, archaeologically speaking because basically then they didn't know about archaeology, they didn't bother visiting Palestine in order to do New Testament studies um, and also, we're beginning to realise that actually there's a huge hangover uh, from, from uh, racial prejudice in the field uh, as well. Um, that, that German theology of that era wanted an Aryan Jesus. A Jesus who is much more influenced by pagan Greek thinking than by Jewish thought. And um, since then, we've had what in New Testament studies has been called the Jewish reclamation of Jesus. And Jewish writers like um, Pinchas Lapide or Giza Vermesh or so on, beginning to write studies of Jesus as a Jewish rabbinical figure. 
and interpreting him within the context of Second Temple Judaism as the correct context for understanding Jesus and his claims and so on. Uh, and so at, all, at many levels it started to come together that actually we're now in a sort of post German liberal theology dominated era of thinking and we're into this sort of interdisciplinary uh, search for the historical Jesus and what's now, now called the, 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 the third quest for the historical Jesus or even further than that perhaps yeah. great let's move on to Jesus the prophet here Deuteronomy 18.15 so this is his fulfilment of one of the Old Testament prophecies um, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your fellow Israelites you must listen to him this is Moses and here is uh, Jesus with the disciples looking out over uh, the temple mount and his famous uh, prediction about the fall of the temple Oregon writing in the second century reports that the Greek writer uh, Phlegon, who was writing in about 180 to 140 AD, uh, so on that bridge from the 1st to the 2nd century, that Phlegon knew of Jesus' prophetic power, and Oregon references him and says, now Phlegon, uh, in the 13th or 14th book, I think, of his chronicles, um, unfortunately I don't think we have Phlegon's chronicles, as, but as I said earlier, we have very little from the ancient world. We do have this quote, uh, uh, from uh, these chronicles, not only ascribed to Jesus a knowledge of future events, although falling into confusion about some things which refer to Peter as if they referred to Jesus, but also testified that the result corresponded to his predictions. So it's interesting to see that sort of opinion of Jesus from uh, a non-Christian writer relatively close to the events. Take as our starting place here in Wilson's comment in his book The Bible is History, where he says it's a straight fact of history that Herod's seemingly so permanent temple, which Jesus had predicted would be destroyed within a generation of his time, did indeed suffer this very fate. And I know from some of the coffee conversation that some people in the room here are probably in a better uh, position to, to fill you in on what it's actually like to be there uh, because they visited Jerusalem and I haven't. My knowledge here is, uh, is second hand. Uh, but there are folks uh, that have been there. Um, so here's a sort of CGI reconstruction of uh, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount at the time of Jesus. Here is a quote from the, uh, what's generally thought to be the earliest gospel, Mark, and uh, just a reference there, and I'm not going to go into why, uh, but I would, um, if I you know, had a gun to my head and I had to pick a date for the publication of Mark's gospel, I'd say AD 49. Uh, as Jesus was leaving the Temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Well, there is the second uh, temple period temple, uh, which existed from about 516 to BC to AD 70 when the Romans destroyed it and here is Temple Mount today uh, so you can see with your own eyes that uh, not one stone of these buildings uh, is left the mount is there none of the buildings on the mount are there uh, today of course we have the the Dome of the Rock mosque uh, on the side of the temple 
Now, Karl Popper was a famous secular philosopher of science, and talking about the philosophy of science, he made this point famously that uh, confirmations in your experiments and so on, confirmations should count only if they're the result of a risky prediction. He wanted scientists to make risky predictions from their theories and then go out and try and prove their theories wrong. <laughs> well, is it a risky prediction to point at the Temple Mount in AD 32, 33, whatever, and say, that'll be destroyed within a generation, not one stone will be left on another, they'll all be thrown down, etc. Um, I think so, and here's a comparison, uh, as introduced by this handsome chap here. Uh, the Parthenon in Athens, which is still standing today, this is the Greek equivalent of the Temple Mount. This is their polytheistic Temples Mount, uh, including the, the famous Parthenon there, which, as you can see, is still just about standing, even today, after several thousand years. Even though, uh, during one of the, the wars, uh, I believe, uh, in, in Greece, the uh, they were storing gunpowder uh, in it, and a Turkish shell hit it, and the gunpowder store exploded. And it's still there. That's good workmanship. <laughs> uh, and of course, because I'm the, we're the, 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 the beneficiary of a colonial empire, you can go to the British Museum uh, in London and uh, see the, uh, the marbles, the Elgin marbles that were around the outside of the temple, and they have a, a display room in the British Museum that's the same size as the temple, only the marbles are, are around the inside of it. So it's like sort of being in a strange fifth dimensional turned inside out temple. Uh, particularly strange experience if you've been there and you've been to the British Museum and then you can kind of put the two things together in your head, although they're sort of inside out from each other. <laughs> so I think it was a risky prediction. You can't just point to any old uh, massive temple complex and say, yeah, that'll be destroyed within a generation. But in AD 70, uh, the Romans under Titus did destroy the Roman temple. This is one of the panel uh, sculptures from Titus's triumph arch in Rome. Those of you who've been to Rome may have seen it, and here we have Roman soldiers carrying off among uh, various items from the temple, including the, the menorah Jewish candlestick from the temple and the, the shover, the bread table from the temple and so on. Now we're told by sources and historians that at a distance the whole temple looked literally like a mount of snow fretted with golden pinnacles. This is a matter of active debate amongst uh, archaeologists and so on what exactly the, the table, uh, temple probably looked like. Here's a model reconstruction here and you can see the sort of white marble and gold uh, leaf fretwork all over it. Uh, now, there's controversy as to why it happened, how it happened, but during the uh, siege of the temple, when the Romans uh, finally took over the temple complex, where the, the Jewish rebels was the last place they were kind of hold, holding up, uh, the temple was destroyed by fire. Fire raged inside and out, and it caused the gold fittings and the gold gilding inside and on its outside walls to melt. And so all this gold that had been decorating the temple, ran in between the cracks of the stones. Now, what does a conquering army want when, you're, when you're, your men have conquered somewhere? It's like, hooray, we've conquered it! Booty! So, during the pillaging of the temple, they took the stones apart in order to get the gold. And during that process, you know, going through the stones, getting the gold, 
throwing the stones off the Temple Mount, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. Uh, I think you can probably see that Jesus' prophecy seems to come in sort of two, two degrees of warning if we compare uh, what's in Luke and what's in Mark on this topic. And Luke says, when you, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognise that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it. Those who are in the country must not enter it, because these are the days of vengeance to fulfil all things that are written. In Mark, we have this comment. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing when he, stroke it, does not belong, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. Um, I call this the, when you see armies coming to destroy Jerusalem, flee for the hills. When you see the abomination that causes desolation in Jerusalem, flee right now. It is really urgent that you get the heck out of there. The end is nigh. <laughs> now, several commentators have linked the events of AD 70, when Titus forced his way into the temple sanctuary, with this prediction of the, the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, Titus's soldiers set up the, their, their Roman standards in the temple. In Jewish thinking, those Roman standards, like the sort of unit flags of their day, would have been considered as pagan idols. And they sacrifice uh, to their gods before their, their idols, their standards. Uh, and they proclaim Titus, uh, the general at that stage, they proclaim him as emperor of Rome because he's had this great victory and uh, they're going to go, you can take us all the way, Titus. Give us all the gold and everything. <laughs> they proclaim him emperor. Um, but other commentators disagree. There's debate about this. So Robert Stein, uh, in uh, his very good book, which I recommend to you, um, on Jesus, the Temple, and the Coming of the Son of Man, uh, he says that this uh, event in AD 70 is surely too late to serve as a sign to flee Jerusalem. And then my ears prick up because, actually, didn't we just read that Jesus said those who are in Judea should flee? But, but anyway, I mean, Judea includes Jerusalem, but he just narrows it down to Jerusalem. So there's a bit of a problem there. But it says, too late is a sign to flee Jerusalem after the siege of Jerusalem when flight was no longer possible. Um, but here I think he hasn't done his uh, history quite carefully enough because since the 19th century, we've known about tunnels underneath Jerusalem. And here is a line marking this is the main sewage channel in Jerusalem. It runs from the temple all the way uh, down to the lower city, including the uh, Shiloh Pool and onto Hezekiah's tunnel and, and so on. In 2007, they, they rediscovered this main drainage uh, channel in Jerusalem. Norman Golb, who's a professor of Jewish history at the University of Chicago, says that underground passages enabled many inhabitants of Jerusalem to exit the city and flee both south to Masada and via the Nahal Kidron and other wadis heading from Jerusalem eastward towards the Dead Sea when the, the Romans were besieging the place. And there he is inside one of these uh, underground tunnels. 
Professor Ronnie Reich of the University of Haifa and Elie Sukron, who I've mentioned before, an archaeologist, uh, says there's evidence in the writings of uh, Josephus that numerous people took shelter in this channel and even lived in it for a period until they succeeded to flee the city through its southern end. So I thought, okay, let's go and look it up what, jo what Josephus says in Jewish War. And in, indeed, in Jewish War, Josephus mentions those who went down into the subterranean caverns during the siege of Jerusalem. He says the Romans made a search for Jews underground and when they found where they were, they broke up the ground and slew all that they met with. But here is the real clincher. Later on, uh, in uh, 865 of uh, Jewish War, he talks about Judas, the son of Jairus, who had been a captain of a certain band at the siege of Jerusalem. And by going down into a certain vault underground, had privately made his escape. And he joins up with other rebels and the Roman army have a battle with him in a forest later on after the siege of Jerusalem and he's killed later. But here was someone who was one of the rebels in the siege of Jerusalem who escaped from Jerusalem by going through these underground tunnels. So it was possible. <laughs> we know it was possible to get out of Jerusalem uh, even after the siege had begun. Now, was this prophecy, is this a backdated prophecy? Josephus actually records the prophecy of another Jesus. It was a popular name at the time. Jesus, who was a peasant and son of Ananias, at the Feast of Tabernacles, prophes prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in AD 60, uh, when Albius was governor of Judah. And so he asks if, uh, Dean L. Overman quoting Josephus here, asks if Jesus, son of Ananias, could make such a prediction prior to AD 70, well, why not Jesus? And I think the, the answer to that rhetorical question is, yeah, but Jesus is meant to have made this prediction a lot earlier than six years before the Jewish war. So that would make it a lot harder to predict. Maybe it was in the air in the 60s, but could you make the same prediction as reasonably in the 30s? And also, it's one thing to just say, oh, the end is nigh, the temple will be destroyed. And it's another thing to say, within a generation, not one stone left on another, the stones will be thrown down. The specificity of Jesus' unlikely prediction is the thing that raises our, hmm, something must be going on here, yeah, indicators. David Wenham and Steve Walton have a few interesting arguments in this area, though. They note that uh, Matthew and Mark's verses inviting the disciples to pray that the, the siege of the city will not happen in winter. But we know historically that the siege happened during April to September in AD 70. So we know it didn't happen in winter. So if you were making it up after the event, why would you get that detail wrong and have Jesus say, pray that it doesn't happen in winter, when you know that it didn't happen in winter. Uh, Luke reports the same saying and the, that the disciples should flee to the mountains. Flee to the mountains. And while we do know that early Christians did flee from Jerusalem when the Roman armies were coming because of this prophecy, um, they went to a place called Pella, which is several hundred feet lower than Jerusalem. Hardly the mountains. So again, if you're making it up after the event, why wouldn't you have Jesus say, 
flee to the coast, flee to Pella, or something, rather than having him say, flee to the mountains, which would leave it open to people to say, there you are, Jesus got it wrong, didn't he? He said flee to the mountains, and they didn't. Well, okay, he wasn't predicting that they will flee to the mountains, but telling them to flee, that was the main point. Maybe you could say, flee to the mountains is, is like a sort of stereotypical, run for the hills. He's, where did my help come from? And, you know, um, but it's, it's kind of an odd way of phrasing it, let's put it, if you're writing it in the knowledge of the historical events themselves. Also then, just, the, just follow, as I say, following the evidence of the datings of the Gospels, you know, the argument about Acts appearing to be written prior to the execution of Paul in 65, Luke's Gospel, therefore, written a bit earlier, uh, Luke is borrowing material from Mark, at least, which must have been earlier than that still. Um, the positive elements in the portrait of the Roman authorities fit with the date prior to Nero's persecution of Christians in the 60s, rather than a later date and so on. It just seems that all of the specific evidence about the dating of the Gospels would lead us to think that they were written sometime between sort of 49 and 65. That nothing is said about the martyrdom of James, the brother of Jesus, in Jerusalem in AD 62. Why is he not mentioned? Do you think that would be mentioned if that had happened before the Gospels were written, or the letters, or whatever? Um, it indicates that Acts was written before news of that event reached Rome, at least, and that Luke's Gospel predates that milestone. Did why not? Why not mention the events of AD 70 as proving the Old Testament prediction that Jesus would be a prophet? Why, why doesn't Mark or Luke or whoever say, look, Moses in Deuteronomy said this, and we know that Jesus was a powerful prophet because he got all of the details about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 right. Remember that? They don't do it. Um, so there is no specific reason other than the anti-naturalistic assumption that miracles can't happen for dating uh, the Gospels uh, late enough to make this a historicised or backdated prophecy. Um, there, for what it's worth, you have on your sheets a little table of my current dating of a uh, range of the, the Gospels, the events that they were reporting, the gap between those events and when they're reporting it, and so on. As I say, my, my theory on the publication of Mark, if you're interested, is there's an interesting report by Tacitus who says that there was, the Jews rioted in Rome at the instigation of one Crestus, which scholars generally think is, he's talking about Christ, and he's mistaken the title Christ as a name. He's got his information a bit wrong, but clearly he's talking about the Jews rioting because of Christ uh, in Rome. And they, they rioted so much that, um, and we get this inside and outside of the New Testament, that he, the Roman emperor kicks all the Jews out of Rome. So it had to be really significant civil unrest for him to kick the entire Jewish population of Rome out. Now, if, having been at the Council of Jerusalem, Mark has met up again with Peter, having 
split off from Paul's missionary journey and upsetting Paul to go back to Jerusalem because he's heard Peter's back there showing him his first draft of the gospel saying I'm going to put these teaching stories together that I've been using on mission with Paul that I remember you using in Rome and I marry it with this passion account from Mary Magdalene or whatever and then when we get back to Rome let's have someone publish that as as a biography of Jesus that would be really useful for the mission of the church and after the Council of Jerusalem they get back to, to Jerusalem in AD 49 publish the first gospel in Rome where it was published according to the early church fathers wouldn't that be an event that would kick up a stink amongst the Jewish population of Rome it's a circumstantial case but um, take it or leave it so it's the specificity of Jesus's uh, arguments uh, predictions here I think remember him saying you know these massive stones just look at the here's a person here's one of the stones from the buildings on the temple if you had odds of one in ten each that unlikeliness would would be the same as getting the pin number right by chance just those four predictions thank you very much best travels that's all right no worries all the best thanks for coming you too but actually Jesus's prediction is more specific than just those four elements there are actually 12 elements to Jesus's prophecy about the Temple Mount uh, in Mark 13 that I can distinguish and you'll have to look at the sheets to get the detail of this but I think at least uh, all of them has have independent evidence in favor of their fulfillment uh, and at least 10 of them have really strong uh, independent evidence two of them have partial independent evidence that they were fulfilled uh, so if we have 12 predictions at odds of 1 in 10 that would be 1 in 10 to the 12 let's bend over backwards again let's just use odds of 1 in 4 um, that gives us roughly 1 in a million or 1 in 10 to the 8 but Jesus made other prophecies as well uh, we mentioned about Peter denying him and so on now these you know that's a fairly short-term prophecy it's harder to argue there that we're sure that the prophecy was made beforehand and so on um, short term there's a mid-term one about Jesus saying the gospel would be, be preached to all nations i.e. the whole Greco-Roman world um, there's a very long-term prediction from Jesus that his words would never be forgotten now in a sense you say well we haven't finished that experiment yet so who knows but you know we've had 2,000 years of the experiment and it seems to be going quite well so far I would argue um, again at odds of um, just you know, one in a hundred each that would be one in ten to the eight so what's the total probability that we've, we've looked at here um, if we combine these with the previous results that we've looked at about Jesus's fulfillment of messianic prophecy and so on if we use uh, Dietz's number of one in ten to the fifteen on the messianic prophecies then we're up in a region of one in ten to the twenty-nine if we use the lower end of my calculations we're up in 1 in 10 to the 33 if we use the upper end of my still very conservative calculations we're up in 1 in 10 to the 41 it's not as impressive as the numbers in the fine-tuning cosmological argument <laughs> 1 in 10 to the 123 to the you know <laughs> etc but still these are astronomically large numbers and really I would just say 
what, what you make of the fulfilled prophecy aspect of what we've looked at in the second session um, will really depend mainly upon the worldview you bring to the evidence. And if someone wants to dig their heels in and say, look, I think I've got really good reasons for an atheistic, naturalistic worldview, and David Hume convinces me that miracles are impossible, and so there must be some other explanation other than a miraculous one for this, well, then you probably need to talk about other issues <laughs> before coming back to this one. But uh, certainly for someone who's coming, as I said earlier, coming at this data already believing in maybe some kind of a God, and is asking the question, has God revealed himself in any specific religious tradition? They you know it's really difficult to deny that you know, miracles are at least possible if there's a God who exists, who might possibly work miracles and so on. Um, so this argument would carry a lot more weight with, with that kind of an audience, as it were. So these are sort of context-specific. And it'll carry more weight in the whole context, as I said, of those... I think there's a range of arguments for the Christian view of, of Jesus. This is just part of the, the cumulative case. But even, note this, even if we set aside the question of fulfilled prophecy, just as we were looking at in the, the first se session about just archaeological corroboration of things the Bible says, the archaeological and uh, extra-biblical quotes that we looked at from, from Jewish and pagan and Roman writers and so on, that data shows that at least in the cases examined, the Gospels present reliable information about what happened in history. The Gospels claim at least that Jesus was perceived to have healed people. And we have very strong historical evidence inside and outside of the Bible that that's true. That doesn't necessarily show that he did miraculously heal people. That might be a, a second kind of question on there, but there is, there's an, there's an overlap there between what the Bible's claiming and what the, the independent evidence can show us. And we see that again uh, and again. You might, even if you think that Jesus' predictions about the temple are historicized uh, or, or made up after the event or, or something, you have at least to admit that the Bible contains accurate information about what did happen in, in, in history it gets the details of what happened to the temple in AD 70 correct. But the fact that the Gospels have access to reliable historical information in that sense, in a way that contrasts sharply to, say, the Gnostic Gospels, does tend to support the proposition that the Gospels are reliably reporting not only historical events in general, but the, say, something like the existence, content, and dates of certain prophecies that Jesus fulfilled or made. If they are, if all the evidence shows that they're being accurate when talking about Lysinus being tetrarch of such and such, or the high priest at the time of Jesus being, you know, called Caiaphas, or... Um, the, the stones of the Temple Mount having been thrown down after the Romans destroy it, um, then it becomes a bit more plausible, at least, to think that when they talk about there was this prophecy made by Jesus and so on, maybe they were being accurate about that as well. Um, particularly, as I say, given the, the context of how 
honest they seem to be with the data in the rest of the cases, even when it's injurious to themselves, when they paint themselves in a bad light, when they admit what to them are embarrassing facts, when they are prepared to die for things that if they knew they had made up, surely they would not have died for, the way in which they're not prepared to just make up words and put them into the mouth of Jesus in order to solve big controversies within the church of their day, and so on. Surely, if, we, if we're just concerned with following where the evidence points, um, it seems to point to Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies at a very long odds, and making a number of prophecies that were fulfilled at quite long odds. And that seems to be something that points to the Christian view of Jesus. And as I say, really your, your, your only real sort of get-out clause from this is going to be to move to a philosophical level of argument. Uh, and then you need to engage at that philosophical level rather than debating at this sort of specific historical level. And at least you can say, notice, you know, now we're not talking about, about history and documents and archaeology and things. Now we're talking about, you know, whether David Hume was right about miracles and, and so on. <laughs> yeah.